0: Welcome back to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. Today, we have a returning guest. Third time. Of course. We have Tom Morris. He's become one of the most active business speakers in America with clients that include General Motors, Merrill Lynch, IBM, the U.S. Air Force, MBNA Bank, and International Paper. He's published 12 books, including If Aristotle Ran General Motors, True Success, and Philosophy for Dummies a former professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. He's now chairman of the Morris Institute for Human Values in Wilmington, North Carolina. And his newest work is the updated silver anniversary edition of one of his most popular books, Art of Achievement, Mastering the Seven C's of Success in Business and Life. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. It's awesome to have you back.
1: Listen, it makes my day to, to be able to be on with you guys, makes my week and month. I just loved uh, when I got the invitation to come back and, and be on with you guys again. You guys are great. I don't know if you know how great you are. I don't want to disturb your humility, but uh, <laughs> it's a real treat.
0: No, you too, man. Like we were saying before we started the recording, the Michael Jordan of uh, philosophy.
1: Well, thank you very much. In fact, I was just watching one of your other episodes uh, earlier today, uh, Krista Thomason. Yep.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: And Alan, you use the verb quell. And I said, (laughs) I've never heard anybody since 1829. And so I went and I said, I've become a normal part of my vocabulary. I will quell any tendency to the contrary. So I learn stuff from you guys all the time.
2: I love it so much. Yeah. Shout out to Krista Thomason, man. Yeah. She's like legit from this past year. She was one of our favorite guests having her uh, talk about emotions and stuff. So it's yeah. like, I, I never thought that we would do a full episode on emotions, but you know, there we were. All right, so- know,
1: Great stuff. Great stuff. But-
2: Thank you. Okay. So just, you know, to begin the episode that we're doing today. Okay. So I'm going to quote from Tom's book, Tom Rowe. From ancient times to the present day, across all developed cultures and throughout the centuries, wise people who have thought deeply about success and excellence have have left us bits and pieces of advice for attaining the right kind of achievement in our lives. I've put all of these insights together into a simple, comprehensive and logically connected framework of seven universal conditions for achieving satisfying and sustainable results in any endeavor. I call them the seven C's of success. To position ourselves for satisfying success in anything we do, we need, number one, a clear conception of what we want, a a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined. Number two, a strong confidence that we can attain our goal. Number three, a focused concentration on what it takes to reach a goal. Uh, Number four, a stubborn consistency in pursuing our vision. Number five, an emotional commitment to the importance of what we're doing. Number six, a good character to guide us and keep us on our proper course. And number seven, the capacity to enjoy the process along the way. All right. I love it. Let's go. Let's go through them, man. Let's start with number one. What does number one mean? how did you get there? And can you give us examples? Well, you know,
1: let me give you a little background to this. I had never thought about success at all. And mm. an Osmobile dealer in South Bend, Indiana, where I used to teach at Notre Dame, he had heard me give a talk on ethics or something somewhere in town. Uh, just I did a lot of free talks for a number of years just to build bridges between the university and the community, you know, and uh he called me. He said, look, I'm a member of the Osmobile Dealers Association of the Upper Midwest. And every year we have a meeting and every year at every meeting, we have a motivational speaker. And year after year after year, they say the same things. You know, they say set goals, believe in yourself, you can do it. He said, there's got to be something deeper than just that, right? Did the philosophers mm-hmm. ever talk about success? And I said, geez, I don't, It's not, I have no idea. It's not the kind of stuff I studied at Yale, you know, in graduate school. I was doing really theoretical stuff. I said, let me look into it and -hmm. see if I can come up with something. So this first condition for success, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the children's books, the children's drawing books where there's a tree and you've got to find five kitchen utensils hiding in the branches of the tree, right? And at first you don't see anything. And then maybe there's a fork and then you start seeing other stuff. Well, first of all, I go to a lot of philosophers that I had heard called practical thinkers, you know, um, like like the Stoics, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to go to Kant, right, and reread the Critique of Pure Reason right away for something like this. I'm going to go to Confucius. I'm going to go to Lao Tzu, maybe the people who are talked about as spiritual and wisdom traditions, those philosophers. And then I branch out and I start seeing patterns and it's like the kid's book. Once you see those utensils in that tree, you mm-hmm. can never not see them, right? And mm-hmm. so it's like, then I turn my attention to a medieval Islamic theologian and I'm seeing these conditions for success in a thing that was supposed to be spiritual poetry. And it's like, once I got the framework in my mind, you know how the psychology of this kind of stuff works, you know, you start seeing it. and the clear conception. It's funny. It comes first because everything else in the, in the list of conditions for success kind of supports that one, right? Uh, We need a clear conception of what we want. Vague thoughts cannot motivate specific behavior. You know, we need to be really clear about what we want. There are a lot of people who think they've set goals, but they just have kind of vague idea of a better future for them, but, but they're not specific. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Seneca, I think it was, yeah, it was Seneca said, no wind blows fair for a ship that has no port. Hmm. I have known a lot of talented people, a lot of super smart people who just kind of drifted along because they didn't have a port they were sailing for. They didn't have a clear destination. And, and there's a psychology of this, as, as you guys are well aware. Once you set a clear goal, you start noticing things in your environment relevant to that goal. Like, I was gonna. My first experience of this was when I was a professor and I wanted a convertible. And for some reason, I wanted a Saab convertible for a while. That was what I had dreamed about, right? I I bought Hmm. the, I I went to the dealership, I got the literature, I was looking at the Saab convertible. All of a sudden, all over South Bend, Indiana, there were Saab convertibles at every stoplight and every parking lot. I was like, what is this? Some kind of magical, they're popping into existence. No, the magic was I was noticing things that were around me all the time, but until I had this grid, this interpretive perceptual grid in mind, I wasn't seeing that stuff. So, I tell people, because I've been told by other philosophers before me, the clearer we can get about goals, the more specific, the more fine-tuned our perceptual grid will be for noticing things in our environment that will help us along the way toward that goal. Mm -hmm. So, that's the starting Mm -hmm. point, right? And one more thing. (laughs) Uh, A guy... 'Cause we're in November now. A guy called me one November, I think it was, and said, Come, come speak to my group in the middle of February. I think it's like February 15th or something. And here's your title, Our New Year's Resolutions, a post-mortem. And I said, like, uh, wait a minute. You know your New Year's resolutions are gonna be dead in the water by February? He said, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always the way. Figure it out for us. Explain sure. it to us. Yeah. Right. And so I worked on this and I'm going back to the philosophers I'm using my own conceptual analysis abilities. And I come up with this idea that a lot of us think we have a goal when all we have is a fantasy, right? We have a dream, a kind of a fantasy. I want to line a hammock in the Bahamas all day, every day, the rest of my life. But it's not a real desire because if some one of the billionaire boys club members out in Silicon Valley was to come up to me and say, here's uh, paid for Bahamas hammock, beautiful house the rest of your life, I'd say, no, I I got other things to do. Thank you very much. But it's not a real desire. It's just a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Some people think they have goals when they have a fantasy. Some people think they have goals when they have a desire. You know, we have desires all the time. We decide not to act on. I may desire something, but don't really set it as a goal because I realize it wouldn't be good for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. And so a goal is not a fantasy. A goal is not a desire. What's a goal? I realize finally it's a commitment of the will. If you don't have a new commitment, you don't have a new goal. And so then you work your way back and try to ar- ar- arraign your desires to support your new goal. You try to build up imaginative fantasies to lure you in the direction of your new goal, but it's that commitment of the will that's the goal itself. And the commitment has to be clear, has to be specific. So that's that's how I came up with the very first condition of success. and. I realized what a vague guy i had been in a lot of ways, and I was just going with the flow in academic philosophy. whatever I was popular for a while, when I was a graduate student, before I started setting my own ideals about what I wanted to do, and uh, it's made a huge difference.
0: I could relate to that, actually. I'm actually very, like what you were just describing in terms of like maybe having a desire or sort of a fantasy, yeah. and then kind of not being able to make that distinction between that and an, a real concise goal. Yeah. What would you maybe like recommend for someone who's really stuck in that sort of vague mindset in order to kind of steer their mind towards, you know, becoming more uh, clear and concise or or developing maybe like some, you know, that uh, purpose that that. Uh, gives that strength of commitment.
2: And can I also add on to that question, actually? Sure, please. Okay. So and here's the other thing. I've actually been thinking a lot about this lately. And just I want to I want to get this out quick, because I don't want your point to be forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. So what I tend to find with a lot of people, especially in, uh, let's say, uh, professions that are pretty lucrative, is that sort of the end goal is what you were talking about, Tom, is the end goal was essentially, you know, the mansion, uh, yachts, whatever, right? So the luxurious lifestyle. So what you often find is in different in different professions, is that people essentially chase money as opposed to being good or being experts in their fields so when you think about like uh let's say i don't know i'm just gonna you know let's say a doctor right and you know the scandal with obviously purdue and you know big pharma and uh, obviously OxyContin, right and so you had these doctors that were essentially chasing money as opposed to you know the well-being of their patients maybe they knew maybe they didn't right it seemed like they didn't care enough but the point is to say i wonder and you know to add on to your point because you know not to get away from it is that like when we are actually uh kind of crystallizing our goals and we're getting away from the vagueness of it also you know in a kind of um in, in in a sort of antecedent way, right? How do we also make sure that we're not chasing the wrong goals, that we're not actually saying, oh, wait, well, I have the right goals in mind, right? So I'm being a doctor, I'm becoming a doctor, but I'm not only doing it, you know, for my own well-being and, you know, kind of financial success and status, et cetera
1: yeah, see so that's a good that's a good point because all the clarification exercises in the world, all the transitional stuff from fantasies to desires to real goals, is not going to lead us in the direction we need to go unless they're the right goals unless we've engaged in that Socratic self-examination, right? Yeah. are are these the goals that are right for me? and and your point, uh, Leon, a lot of people uh, chase what should be occasional wonderful side effects of really beneficial goals. And they set as their focal goals, things that should never be focal goals, but should always be side effects, like the money and the fame and the status and all this. They're chasing that stuff. And one thing about that stuff is you never get enough. You're right, so you're never satisfied. Mm-hmm. You're always going more. And secondly, look at what it does to a lot of people, right? Like the doctors going, you know, uh, uh, prescribing opioids. I had a, I had a friend at, at in South Bend, he was a nephrologist at the hospital. Um, and he decided he really wanted to do uh, medical ethics instead, wanted to go to the University of Chicago, get a degree in medical ethics and teach medical ethics. And so he started shutting down his practice and he farming out his patients to other doctors. And and he told me he had a sequence of confrontations in the hospital parking lot where other doctors would come up to him and say, I hate you. And he would say, <laughs> at first, he would say, what? And they would say, you're doing what I want to do. And I can't. Uh, and, he, and he said, why don't you, Oh, why can't you? And they said, well, and it always ended up being a certain lifestyle. Uh, my wife just got a new Mercedes and we got this house that we couldn't afford if I were to quit my job. And blah, blah, blah. So these guys were trapped by what they had originally thought of as great goals to attain. Right. They were then trapped in a lifestyle that wouldn't let them pursue what they really wanted to pursue. So I first introduced these conditions for success in a book called True Success in 1994. That's how far back I go. And <laughs> and uh then The Art of Achievement came out a few years later, and I've just done the second edition, and I try to stress in both books how it's one thing to have success, it's one, another thing to have true success success that's connected with flourishing, well-being, happiness, uh, making your difference in the world, being who you sort of essentially could become at your best and highest. And a lot of people just set goals. They clarify those goals. They transition from a fantasy to a desire to a commitment. And but it's the wrong thing. It's Mm -hmm. because of illusions in society. Oh, I need to be chasing this because everybody else is. Oh, I need to be doing that because everybody else says that's so great. Well, that's what Socrates was all about, was just stripping away all these misapprehensions, all these illusions, and trying to get people to really understand what are the realities beneath all the shadows in the cave, right? And so half my job as a philosopher, you know, why do companies hire a philosopher? I mean, that, that's something I never thought was going to happen. It's it's not a goal I ever set myself. I want to be a philosopher for business. I didn't think there was any such thing as that, or there could be. And early on, people would say to me, when it just started happening, like the automobile dealers went nuts over the seven seas of success. And then they started telling their friends. And all of a sudden, I'm at Ford and General Motors and Toyota and Mercedes-Benz and, and then other industries, you know, and, and it started becoming this huge thing. And I realized somebody came up to me one day and said, look, you talk about ethical success character is one of the conditions. Yeah. And I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, what do you think you're ever window dressing for companies that, you know, they, they're running the ethics flag up the pole. Right. And they, they really, they really just want to use your insights about success for higher performance and productivity and greater products, but they're not really interested in the, you know, the wisdom side of things, the ethics side of things. And I said, hey, I don't have any concrete proof that anybody who's ever hired me to give a talk or do anything else has ever done it purely hypocritically, just for show. Uh, but if they did, they'd need to hear what I have to say more than anybody mm. else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I once stopped going to church when I was a young teenager because I went to a Baptist church and they didn't believe in music and dancing, and I played in rock band, so it was bad for my business. You know, um, my father <laughs> said, "Why don't you come back to church?" And I said, "Church is full of hypocrites." And he said, "Can you think of a better place for them to be?" <laughs>
2: wow. I thought, well, yeah, yeah. "Man,
1: that's looking at it from the other end of the stick, right?" Yeah, so, so half my job as a philosopher is. You know you could use the 7 Cs to become a better bank robber, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a better peddler uh, of of narcotics, you know. You 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 except for the character condition, those are the tools, man that anybody could use regardless of the ethical status of what they're after. I'm trying to convince people as a, as a philosopher set the right goals, yeah. you know.
2: Yeah. So, you know, going into the ethical part, and now we're talking about the, the, I guess, the philosophy of it. So, I mean, you could read any self-help book on how to become successful. But again, you have a, in your in the seven seasons your version of it, you do have character as a component of it. So can we talk a little bit about the philosophy and how we could use philosophy to actually convince people that no, it's not good to actually peddle, let's say, opioids. And, you know, and it, it, not to say that there's some people that obviously need them, understandably, but it's not a good thing to actually use, uh, let's say, use success, skill, right? in it itself as a means to enact. Only right. It could go. Now we are talking about con. so it could be a means to an end to some extent, right? But it can't be the only reason why you're doing this. So you can't have a doctor essentially because fundamentally, like you know, we were talking about before, because fundamentally, society falls apart. You can't have a doctor pretty much just pursuing wealth for the point or for the purpose of a luxurious lifestyle. I mean, ultimately, they, they could probably even go do other things, you know. Hopefully, Uh, but the point is to say, how does philosophy now kind of intervene here? And now, how does the ethical component play in? And how do now we get people to see that no, there's one version of success that's actually less valuable than the other
1: yeah yeah it it, it's it's a challenge sometimes because it's kind of it's the sort of thing that people have to see the failure of it i mean even marcus aurelius talks in his meditations about having tried all these things that didn't work to bring about happiness in his life and he had to try them before he realized they didn't work right right. i was offshore i was outside the continental united states i won't say where i was but i was asked to speak to a bunch of corporation presidents And uh, they put me up in this really nice hotel. At first, I thought we're going to have the meeting in the hotel. No, you're going to have the meeting at some guy's house or something. Oh, okay. Um, And so they take us to this house. And it's not just a gated community, this neighborhood. It's a fortress. The whole neighborhood Mm -hmm. is huge high walls topped with barbed wire. With guys with long guns and German shepherds everywhere in uniform in this neighborhood. Neighborhood Watch is an armed militia. And it's like these guys, some of these guys, I didn't realize until I got there, because they were part of a really well-known organization. They had made their money in ways that had angered other people. Uh I I don't think any were drug dealers or anything like that. I don't think they would have been part of this organization at all. I'm usually really careful as to who I do and do not speak to. Um, But their relative lack of regard for consequences in the community had made them have to build a wall and had made them have to put barbed wire on top of the wall and made them have to hire guys with guns and big dogs. Really? That's the way you want to live. And, you know, don't we know that there's no wall high enough? There are no dogs mean enough. There's not enough armed guards if you are wrecking havoc in the world in the, with the goals you pursue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I see this, I have to turn, I have to reframe. I'm, there are a lot of speakers, I'm on a program with other speakers often, and sometimes I don't have time to listen to the other speakers because I have to go to the next thing. Sure. But when I do hear other people, um, I hear a lot of the same stuff. And I've heard people more than once who's like pushing the tape recorder button. You're going to hear exactly the same words the other audience heard, and the audience before that, and the audience before that. They have kind of memorized the speech, and they do it really well. But they always do exactly the same thing. I've never done that. For me, philosophy is improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. And like good jazz, there's something you there's a framework right? Uh, there, there's a basic melody, a basic where you're going, but you get there all kinds of different ways. So if I'm going to speak to a group and all of a sudden occurs to me, Ooh, some of these guys may have been pursuing the wrong things or in the wrong ways. I'm going to have to alter a little bit what I do as a philosopher to tailor it to that. Let's wake these guys up about that. So yeah, it's a, man, I never expected to do all this. I mean, across industries and around the world and With hugely successful people, many of whom I found to be miserable people because of exactly what you guys are talking about. They've chased the wrong things, right? And you can't have enough houses to get away from yourself when you chase the wrong things. Um, And so it's been a really wake up call. Yeah, I don't need the Lamborghini, right? (laughs) because <laughs> what too many people I know who have the Lamborghinis have had to do to get the no I, I don't have to get back from the grocery store that fast ice cream doesn't melt that quickly you know I mean
0: uh, how difficult or how easy is it would you say you know when you're speaking to a group of people and let's say you're actually maybe like you catch some of those miserable people in the crowd yeah uh how easy or difficult is it to you know kind of connect to those people to kind of bring them over to more of the you know right way of thinking especially the cynics
1: yeah Yeah. especially right because and here's something this here's an image that's become increasingly more valuable to me the older i get and the more i see
2: very little in
1: life is like an on off switch click on click off more things in life are like a dimmer switch in a dining room or something there's there's a spectrum there's always a spectrum and with respect to people like this there's a spectrum there are a lot of guys who are miserable, but they realize this. they think it's because it's, they don't have enough mm. of the stuff that's not going to satisfy them. If I just get a little bit more, I'll feel differently. <laughs> um, fast Company Magazine once interviewed me on that whole topic, the topic of enough, because they saw a lot of startup people, a lot of entrepreneurs who were just, if they weren't getting what they wanted, they were running fast. And if they weren't getting what they wanted, they just ran faster. And it was like, wait, whoa, you know, wait, all right. Seneca once said, "It's no good to run faster if you're on the wrong path. You get farther from your true goal by your very 100%. speed." Right. So, um, so some guys are easy to approach. They approach me. I mean, a woman in a meeting of CEOs, a spouse of one of the CEOs, comes up to me one day in the, you know, we're having a break. And we're out in this beautiful ball outside this ballroom in this hotel in this beautiful space, and everybody's having drinks and little things to eat and stuff. And she comes up to me with her husband, and they're both beautiful people and they're gracious and kind and wonderful. You know, I'm talking to both of them. And then he goes to get their seat for the next session. And she says to me, I'm thinking about having an affair. I'm like, what? that's what? random.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. You know, what, no, just
1: <laughs> and, and uh and i said well okay um uh why <laughs> and and she says i i just don't think my marriage is worth saving and i you know i'm not prepared for something like this right i mean i'm I, i'm not a psychologist i'm not a therapist you know but but i say um when she says my marriage I don't think my marriage is worth saving. I say to her, just spontaneously, I say to her, have you done everything you could possibly do to make it a marriage worth saving?
0: Mm.
1: And she said, oh, geez, I never thought about it like that before. Mm-hmm. And then we had this really interesting conversation. And the problem is they had both been chasing the wrong things in such a way that was pulling them apart. Whereas they had a lot of common values. They had a lot of things that could be great goals for them to partner up on in wonderful ways, but other things that were glittery and shiny had pulled, had distracted their attention from the things that matter most. And so we had a nugget of a conversation where, what can you do mm. if you're not right? You're not going to see this person once a week for you know a, a period of time. You're going to see you're trying you're trying to plant a seed mm. of maybe a new way of thinking, right? Uh, it's like this Greek principle, a lot of the Greek philosophers, not just the Stoics that, that I've been immersed in recently again, but a lot of the Greek philosophers had this principle, I call it the functionality principle.
2: Mm-hmm. Very
1: few things in this world are intrinsically good for us or intrinsically bad for us. Most things, it's a matter of how they function for us. How do we use them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and goal setting is that kind of thing. Goal setting, how do you use it in your life? Does it function for you in a healthy way? Or are you using it just to get into worse and worse forms of trouble? Right. And with respect to the spectrum of people who talk to me as a philosopher about this, there is a spectrum, and some of them are going to be really open. And others, I realize, you know what? I can just plant a few seeds here. And if I can attract their attention, go, have you ever read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations? You know, have you ever read Epictetus? Uh, have you ever read? And if I can get them to do something, so I, it's not me telling them what they should do they're going to read some great form of literature ennobling for them and they're going to discover maybe it's it, there was a form of literature in the I guess it was in the Renaissance called a mirror for Princes mm-hmm. There are people who were writing little tracks meant for the the wealthy and the successful to look into this essay and maybe see themselves
2: reflected
1: in a way that would give them the possibilities of new self-knowledge and, and new self-becoming. You know? So that's what I'm trying to do sometimes.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when it comes to podcasting, I feel like I've said this before, but it's worth reiterating. So Alan really keeps me honest. I feel a lot of pressure for this podcast to do like more than I guess. So I'm sure, you know, the data, a lot of people do like most podcasts are like failures, obviously, because there's so many and the field is sort of saturated with them. So I'm like, okay, how do I at least, you know, how do we get in the top 25% so we could at least keep this thing viable? Uh, But yeah, yeah, you know, Alan actually focuses on the values and like what actually we produce for people, uh, you know, who actually, who takes something away from it, who uh, can kind to take some of the lessons you know kernels of wisdom or whatever who can kind of be kind of moved by it right whereas like yeah. for me i mean that that is important but i'm ultimately like thinking most of the time you know but what about the results right because we have to think that we have to keep this thing sustainable
0: so i mean yeah it connects to uh one of the c's in your book right um commitment right i mean yeah, yeah. How, how, how can you maintain that commitment if things like so on on one level, yeah, you, you actually do have to be very logical and pay attention to the metrics. This yeah. way, you know what works, what doesn't work. And of course, um, adjust to that because obviously doing the same thing over and over again, that's the definition of insanity. You don't want to do that. I completely agree with being metrics based. But then I feel like also doing that gets you away from the, you know, what's the purpose of why are we doing this? Right. Is it, is it to become famous? Is it just to make money and get uh, money from a podcast and be like Joe Rogan or something? No, it's more like, Hey, you know, it's, it's kind of about like, oh, there's certain bits of information, knowledge that isn't widely or it's more widely accessible now than it ever was, but it's still not everywhere where it needs to be. These little seeds of thoughts, for for example, like ideas like um, for me, I didn't even know what being present to the moment was. I mean, I've heard these words in my life, but I didn't even know and put a label on what that feeling was until maybe my early 20s, when maybe that's something that you should learn when you're uh, younger or the concept of uh, ego right? Like, yeah. Oh, uh, I'm having these thoughts, but are they like really my thoughts? Or is it just kind of like these looping yeah. patterns? Like, is this really me? Is this like, mm-hmm. just like some kind of conditioning? And I, yeah. I always thought it was me, you know? Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. I find that out later though, which is yeah. fine. Everything has its time, but it's interesting. Like, what if this got was taught in schools or what if this was yeah. just something Absolutely. that was viral Absolutely. or
2: something? And Wait, you go Wait, ahead. I So I now want to piggyback on that. And actually now want to ask you, Tom, a kind of a difficult question. Okay. So now me and Alan are kind of like in this in between state. And by the way, this is actually just hypothetical territory. I think our podcast is doing well enough. But like, let's say now he and I are in this in between state, right? So Alan says, okay, here I want to provide value, right? And I'm like, well, you know, maybe the numbers aren't exactly expressing what I wanted, right? So how do you now maintain a level of consistency when there is this kind of, maybe not internal, maybe interpersonal tension where you could <laughs> see, okay, there's some... Some value somewhere like a sliver of it being provided but on the other hand maybe the results aren't exactly what you're looking for right and then also taking into consideration the milieu of competition because if you do have let's say you know thousands millions whatever of podcasts you're competing with and let's say you know you're dropping the ocean right how do you maintain that level of consistency when the feedback you're getting maybe some of it is good but it's very minimal
0: i think it's competency but what, okay okay yeah. well but tom what do you yeah, think
2: you know, that kind
1: of attention can be very healthy because neither of you guys is emphasizing something that's inappropriate, unworthy, should be forgotten about. Because Alan's, Alan's emphasis on the quality of what you're doing, well, sure, you want to do high-quality stuff, right? And and And, Leon, your emphasis on getting it to more people rather than fewer people, well, why wouldn't you want that, right? Because at Notre Dame, I started teaching by request. I asked them to give me really small classes when I first started being a professor, assistant professor, the damage minimization principle. Until I got good, I wanted to inflict myself on as few people as possible. But then once I got good at it, it's like the more the merrier. It went to 80 to 100 to 200 to 300 to 400. I said, put us in the basketball stadium. I mean, why? I'm going to work just as hard for 12 people as I would for 12,000 people. Mm -hmm. Why not have more people benefit? So your metrics it's like you're saying, okay, we're getting good at this. Boy, why did it take me until I was a certain age to learn about stuff like ego and being in the present and all this? Just think about all the people who are even older than me who still haven't gotten that. Don't we want to reach them, right? It's, it's almost like you really want to, you know, it's just, don't hide your light under a basket is an ancient metaphor for when you found the light. Let it shine as far as it can and let as many people benefit from it as possible. On the other hand, if you get too obsessed with the metrics and the data, you lose track. You start just chasing whatever's been most popular, but whatever's been most popular was always most popular in the past, or you wouldn't have the data or the metrics on it. That doesn't mean it's predictive. It's not always predictive. Things change, right? So, so you have to be able to keep a clear head. And not let the tail wag the dog, as the old saying goes. Not let the metrics control everything, but it would be crazy not to consider the metrics if you want to do good for a lot of people, right? So it's always a dynamic balance, and to me, balance is never static. It's always a moving target. It's the guy on the it's the guy on the high wire who's always a little off to the left or a little off to the right, and it's constant rebalancing and adjustment. That's what balance is. Right. And so for you guys. It's the perfect yin and yang, basically, because you, you're you both giving voice to the two things that are so important for making a difference for good in the world. You can't forget either of them, but mm-hmm. you can't obsess about one of them. Yeah. So it's listening to each other and listening to each other, not just as a secondary thing, but as a primary thing. So, okay, I care about X and you care about Y. Please, I want to be open to why. I want to learn more about why. I want to appreciate more deeply how that can benefit what we're doing, right? So you're, you're really engaged in active listening, which is becoming a real thing for me. I mean, secondly, it's not just the Stoics. They were big on this, but it was Bhagavad Gita. A lot of Eastern philosophy is also big on this. We're always about results in our culture right now. It's not that the ancients didn't care about results. That would make no sense. You can't live that way. Yeah, I'd love to have dinner tonight, but I really don't care whether we do or not. I mean, you know, you got to care about results. But the Stoics and a bunch of Hindu wise people both said, what you got to focus on is the practice. What you got to focus on is the process. It's the people who focus on the results who rarely get the results. Ironically, that they want, and the people who create a great practice, a great process, the results just appear. It's almost like having great, good seed and good soil; you're going to have great plants, right? Um, and but in our time, we're focused on the results, and so we take the metrics the wrong way. Uh, so the metrics are important, but insofar as they can tutor us into how, what should our practice be? What should our process be so that we can reach more with high value, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd rather in that trade-off, I'm always going to go, I mean, you know, do I've never met an author who's sold enough books, right? (laughs) I've never met a speaker who's had enough standing ovations, even the top speakers. So there's always a desire for more, right? But I'm always gonna my more in terms of reach has always got to be answerable to value mm-hmm. to the quality. I would rather write a high quality book than one that's just gonna check all the boxes so lots and lots of people buy it. In fact, that's kind of that's a fault of mine. I do that to a fault, you know, I would rather have something I really, really believe in because I've been given plenty of opportunities to kind of, you know, sell out. And uh, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not being a philosopher. That's that's becoming something else. And so, I mean, I'm sure my my original colleagues at Notre Dame, when I was doing articles for philosophical review and analysis and American Philosophical Quarterly and all this stuff with modal logic and all this really complicated stuff, I'm sure there were a bunch of people in that community who thought I had totally sold out to start yeah. doing public philosophy, what I've been doing now for 30 years. Oh, look, okay, he's getting paid all this money and stuff. I didn't, I didn't care, but I wasn't doing it for that. I did it free for two years for anybody who asked me, not even knowing you could get paid for it. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, but then once you're doing it, you want to reach as many people as you can. So keep that mm-hmm. dynamic going, you know, keep advocating each of you guys for your thing with, total sensitivity to the other guy's thing, and that's what pushes us to get better.
2: I love it. And then what I also hear you saying is that when you're thinking about it in terms of, let's say, and I'm not saying you're exactly framing it this way, but this is what at least yeah. I'm interpreting in your message. When you're sure. thinking about it in terms of chasing trends versus authenticity, yeah. I think the point is even from a results perspective or standpoint, when you're tra- when you're chasing trends, it probably kind of fucks you over in the long run because like ultimately the few people who do become successful in chasing trends, let's say whatever per- whatever fraction it is, it's a very small one. As opposed to authenticity, it probably increases the chances because if you look at like any major artist you know, from Kurt Cobain, Tupac, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, these people were trendsetters themselves. So yeah, so the point is to say you would have to take a risk in being authentic rather than doing the thing that, you know, let's say in the past has done well, because ultimately the past is the past and it do- it did well there. And the chances that, you know, you'll be able to replicate it are probably pretty slim.
1: See, I, I, this is a perfect example of why I love this show, right? Uh, so with Krista, you got, I got the word quails. With Le- <laughs> Leon, I got folks you over. Let me write that down. Use
2: that later. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: like I'm surrounded by treasures.
2: here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay. Which, is, which what- is kind
1: of my metaphor for being a philosopher, actually, is, I, and I came up with this years ago, um, because I live in North Carolina, I live at the beach, not in the mountains, but I love the mountains too. And up in the mountains in North Carolina, there's a lot of dig, uh, uh, prospecting for gold in the rivers, in the rivers of North Carolina, the little mountain streams, and people find really amazing gold nuggets and stuff. And so, so my image was, I'm like a guy panning for gold, in a cold North Carolina mountain stream. And I'm standing there all day long, you know, with my pan in the mud. And most of the time I pull it out, it's just mud, you know, but every now and then I get a gold nugget. And what I do is I pluck it out, I wash it off, clean it up. And I try to put that in my books and talks for the Mm -hmm. people who don't have time to stand all day in that cold mountain stream, looking for that nugget
2: oh i love that that's such a great metaphor yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. so So, and you know it's so funny i want to i want to also give a really quick anecdote so um Alan and I, I mean, I'm not gonna bring the, the names up just because I'm not really sure. I mean, people can know if they look at this up, but I don't want to bring up the names because I'm not sure like if they want this information divulged, whatever. So, but like uh so Alan and I know two uh relatively well known comedians. And so uh so they're friends of the really good friends of a really good friend of ours. So it was so funny going to your point, Tom. So when I saw them, we went bowling like a couple of weeks ago. And so I asked him, I said, Hey man, like so how's it going like with your podcast? And he says, you know, yeah, you know, he's like, you know, what's the normal complaint? It could be more, right? And then so and then so his partner, who's another comedian too, is so she's like, oh, you know, like what are you guys talking about? And so he says, oh, well, Leon asks like, how's our podcast going? And then she's like, oh yeah, you know, I think it could be more. And he's like, right, that's what I was just telling him. It's the same thing, right? So it's kind of exactly what you're saying. And by the way, these people are doing incredibly well, you know, at least from our standards. Yeah, uh, yes. and, but yeah, but but it's the same stuff. Yeah, he was like, you know what, it could be more. He's like, yeah, he's like, I wish we made more money from Patreon. He's like, I wish we had more views. But yeah, he's like, ultimately, I guess you know, it's it's going relatively fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And once you understand that everybody feels that way about
1: everything they're doing pretty much, you kind of can say, "Okay, let me just eliminate that from my emotional turmoil." Uh closet, right? Because uh I'm never going to get to a point, "What if I was at their point? I would be so happy." No, yeah. you'd be just like them, wishing those numbers were a little bit higher, right? So yeah, yeah, it's important to to learn stuff like that. And you know, I love it when people you know, my little metaphor about panning in for gold, I, I love it when people, like the Oldsmobile guy, talk about success. Well, that's led to not only the book, True Success and the book, The Art of Achievement, Product Placement Time. It's also uh, is the framework I used for my earlier book on stoicism called The Stoic Art of Living. I wanted to do... A practical book drawing from the Stoics. So I use my framework of seven universal conditions, and I make clear in the Art of Achievement as well as in the other books, these are not logically necessary and sufficient conditions for success. You know, you don't have to have superior confidence to, to be you could be surprised by your success. And that means you weren't really confident you were going to do it. These are facilitating conditions, they're enabling conditions for success. They position you better for success, and they've been recognized in, in every culture. So the guy who said to me, yeah, could you give us a talk on success? Same thing with um my book, Plato's Lemonade Stand. It came out of a guy saying, a woman calling me and saying, our bank is being bought by Bank of America. And the day the sale goes through, our boss, who's been hiring you to give speeches, the day the sale goes through, he gets, uh, I think it was like $20 million or something. And the rest of us don't know if we're going to have a job. Wow. So... Have you ever spoken on how to deal with disruptive change? Scary disruptive change? I said, No, I haven't. Well, c- could you? Okay, okay. Let me look into it. So I go pan and I get my pan. I go up to the North Carolina Mountains of the Mind. I pan for gold. And that becomes a talk called The Art of Change. I was fixated on art for a while because I came to realize that everything in human life worth doing, there's a skill attached to it. And mm-hmm. when there's a skill, you can get better. And if you, as you practice that skill, you are actually practicing an art. And there are all kinds of arts of living that we have. One of them is how to deal with change. One of them is achievement. Um, there are you know, emotional management and stuff, uh, or uh, interacting uh, productively with your emotions. There's an art to that. There's all this stuff. So that became the book Plato's Lemonade Stand. Of course, 15 years, 24 versions, 44 rejections. Finally, it becomes the book Plato's Lemonade Stand. Recently... And you guys may have heard this too, but at the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic with the shutdown, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. was getting calls from business groups, executive groups all over the cross industries. Can you help us with disruptive change? And that I just published the book played it as lemonade stand. And I said, sure, you know, and so we do as, even for the first April, May and June in 2020, nobody had budgets for a speaker. And I'd been a paid speaker since the late eighties, but I was doing free talks. Again, what's most important to you? I was doing two or three free talks a week in April, May, and June just because people needed me, but they didn't have a budget for any Zoom meetings. That wasn't a thing then. I Hmm. I just want to be of use to people. Okay, sure, I'll do it. And recently, within the last year, nobody's calling me about disruptive change anymore. You know what they're calling me about? It's Hmm. really interesting to kind of listen to what people are saying. They're calling, how do we deal with all the uncertainty in our lives? It's Hmm. like uncertainty is coming at us in every dimension from every domain of life. It's like political uncertainty. It's like environmental uncertainty. It's global uncertainty. It's a job uncertainty. Yeah. The economy is doing really well in lots of ways, but how do we know when the fed's going to go one increase too far? Or how do we know that, you know, the next pandemic's going to come along and maybe fulfill Mary Shelley's second book, uh, I, I'm shopping around a book manuscript now called The Frankenstein Factor. Mm. Uh, monster success and massive failure. About mm. smart, talented people whose very success at the wrong goals unleashes on the, into the world monsters they can't control. Boy, talk about a metaphor for AI. Yeah. Talk about a metaphor for in people's lives on a smaller scale, right? But Mary Shelley, brilliant young woman, 18 years old, writes Frankenstein. But then a few years later, she writes a book about a pandemic in the 21st century. Now, this is an 1826 book, a pandemic in the 21st century that kills everybody. And it's called The Last Man (laughs) because it's narrated by the last person alive. (laughs) Uh, So this biological plague, and a lot of people say, hey, COVID, hate to break this to you, but it's a warm-up act for what's next, you know. And Mary Shelley, it's like, we've got all this wisdom out there that we need to draw on that she was grappling with in in her age. But the only reason I mention that is because when people come to me with something like uncertainty, yeah, we got it from so many sources, so many sides. So I'm going to write a book because, that first of all, I I don't know how to do anything else. That's what I do. But uh, years ago, I did another product. Years ago, I did a book called The Oasis Within. came to me as a movie in my head. One character at one point in the book says to another character who just says he's really worried. There's so much uncertainty in his life coming up. He's really scared. And the older character says, have you ever considered the possibility that uncertainty is a gift? And it's like when I hear the character in my head say that, I'm thinking, what? What does that even mean? Uncertainty is a gift? I mean, think of the worst gift you've ever been given, right? That's a lot worse. I
0: mean,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Why would that be? And then he starts talking about it a little bit. It's like, oh, really? Now, this was February, March 2011 when the character says that. And then nobody brought up the topic of uncertainty to me except in the last year. And so I decided I'm going to write a book called The Gift of Uncertainty. And I'm going to give a talk. People have asked me to give a talk next week. I'm going to give a, not this coming, but the following week. I'm going to give my first talk on The Gift of Uncertainty. And I mentioned this also because when you listen to people, and this is back to metrics and quality and value and how a podcast does. When you listen to people, you really listen, you take to heart what you hear them saying, then they're going to listen to you and they're going to Mm. take to heart what you're saying. And so part of my job as a philosopher has to be listening to what's out there, what's affecting people and podcasters, same thing, same formula, be listening to people. Um, and for a guy who talks as much as I do, listening is sometimes a challenge, but it always pays off.
2: That's awesome. Ooh, so, okay, I have a question now. So now we're going back to the seven C's. So, yeah. confidence, right? So you mentioned that confidence is supremely important, but then here's what I'd wonder. So, especially when the metrics aren't as great as you'd hope, and again, you know, the environment is hyper competitive. So, first of all, why is confidence so important, and then how do you maintain it in an environment that again is really hyper competitive, where let's say there's a kind of a threshold for what for what the minimum, right, for what you expect for yourself for your podcast, etc. And maybe you're not getting it, right? So maybe there is some sense of value somewhere. And you know, maybe some people are giving you some good feedback somewhere down the line, but it's not sort of keeping the lights on, so to speak. Yeah, and then right. so how how do you then do that? How do you maintain that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a real inner game, right? Yeah, I re- remember the book from the 70s called The Inner Game of Tennis. You know, everything's an inner game, basically. And when I, I've had the, the opportunity to know a lot of championship athletes in my my life from Hall of Fame baseball player to olympic champions to national champions in various sports and they all share one thing in common and they often don't know have not talked to people in other sports about this particular topic but most of them do tend to have a sense of it that the best athletes do not depend on their circumstances for their confidence they bring their confidence to their circumstances and it's like the old thing about comfort zones, motivational, the one number one motivational speaker sentence in the past 10 years has been, you got to get outside your comfort zone. Yeah, You got to get outside your comfort zone. So one day I hear a guy yelling this from a stage under spotlights where he is a hundred times a year. He's yelling at me and the audience to get out of our comfort zone from smack dab in the middle of his own comfort zone. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, okay, something's wrong here. Oh, maybe there are two kinds of comfort zones. There's a complacency comfort zone that's mm. about fear, and that's about often about mediocrity as being good enough. But there's another kind of there's another kind of comfort zone. It's it's all about mastery. It's almost like the greatest athletes I've ever known. They compete in the middle of their comfort zone. The greatest musicians I've ever known play in the middle of their comfort zone because guess what? It's not the wrong kind of comfort zone. It's the right kind of comfort zone and it's portable. They take it with them wherever they go. Mm -hmm. I think motivational speakers ought to be saying to people, take your comfort zone with you wherever you go. So take your confidence with you wherever you go. Don't depend on the circumstances. Don't depend on the metrics for your inner sense, because it's an inner game that you've got to play to get those metrics, to get those circumstances. So if you're waiting for the metrics, if you're waiting for the circumstances, it's never going to happen. You're putting the wrong thing first. It's an inner game that you have to learn to play yourself. And why is it important? because it unleashes our potential. We lock our potential down with worries and fears and second-guessing and doubts. um, All the forms of lack of confidence, right? And so I've got in the book um, uh, a chapter in the Art of Achievement on the logic of confidence, where if you're lacking confidence in something, here's how to break it down. It's one of about seven or eight things that you may be doubting. Well, let's isolate all the possible things that could be causing your lack of confidence and go through like a checklist, like pile airline pilots before flight. Let's check on each one of these things, once you can isolate what the problem is, what the exact source is of lack of confidence, you can deal with it. Mm. And I talk about how you do that. But um, it's important because the people you are competing with and I hate to view everything as a competition, but let's face it, you know, some uh, some of the podcasts are going to get more views than others. There are people who are not reading my books because they're reading books that are more popular, right? So there's a sense in which we're all competing for time, right, and attention uh, in trying to do the good we're, we're, we're doing in, in, in the world. And and some of our competitors out there, the reason they're uh, ahead of our numbers, one of the reasons is they came, they came at it with more confidence. They didn't wait for the numbers. They they just had this tendency toward confidence. Now, you can be overconfident, right? Anything can be, you know, Aristotle's view of a virtue. With every virtue, it's a response to something. Uh, there could be too little and too much, right? So so response to threat and danger, the too little is cowardice. The too much is rashness. The virtue is courage, right? Mm-hmm. And so so confidence is the same way. You, you could have too little of it, right? Uh, always self-doubt. Uh, 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 or you have too much of it, arrogant. You arrogant person, you know? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this midpoint is the virtue. Um, yeah, uh, so so the confidence game has, and that's a funny thing. So you'd expect to see it from the Stoics, at least the Roman Stoics, because Roman society was all about conquering the world, right? Making things yeah. happen. And so, yeah, confidence, you got to have confidence. But how about Eastern philosophy? They're not uh, typically traditional Confucianism, Taoism, you know, Hindu, various strands of Hindu thought. It's not about conquering the world. It's more about conquering yourself. Mm. But it's still about confidence in the process. Right, Most people think what confidence is, I have confidence that I will attain this goal. Yes, we're going to be number one in our industry. Yes, we're going to be number one podcast. That's not the confidence that the philosophers recommend. Sometimes that's going to be the end point. Um, but the confidence is in the practice, in the process, in doing your very best. I can do this. I can do yep. this process. Right. And that's what empowers you. And the more you do it, little steps of confidence, the more your confidence grows and you get to the point where you metrics or no metrics, you're just going to be great.
0: Right. Yeah. Plus, uh, anyway, when you're either in the moment or in a flow state, the symptom of that is that it conveys that you're outside of your head and you're uh You're essentially being your authentic self, yes. and people love being on the receiving end of authentic absolutely. communication. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, concentrating on the result that I yeah. want people to think yeah. I'm this or that, versus you conquer yourself and you actually be present to the moment, it, it's like you reverse the cause and effect. You you, you have that feeling first, and then. You're- Thank you for that. Thank you yeah. for
1: that, Alan, because it reminds me of one of my favorite passages in any book relevant to this. It's Phil Jackson's basketball book called Sacred Hoops. Mm. And he talks about the the the, the Bulls with Michael Jordan. Um, oh, you're you for, in it. Thank you for calling me the Michael Jordan. <laughs> <because> <laughs> I got the Distinguished Young Alumnus Award at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill right after he did. So mm. my kids finally mm. thought, oh, dad must be doing something. Um but Scottie Pippen says, it, it's like confidence done right because becomes self-transcending. It's not about me, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. When you become confident at a certain level, a level of mastery is what we're, what we're moving toward. Then, as Pippen said, in the very best games, it was almost like time disappeared.
2: Mm. It,
1: was, it was almost like we were in this big moment. And the ball, Michael was where he was supposed to be. And the ball was where it was supposed to be. And, and I was doing a pass that I was supposed to do. And there was no mental deliberation. Where's Michael? Where's the ball? Where's the? the how am I being guarded? Are there two guys here? There was none of that. There's just this flow. The confidence had lifted into the self-transcendent level where they were able mm-hmm. to do these magical games. And that's what we're all striving for, right? And it's doing the inner work. So I have this new publishing imprint I call wisdom work imprint, and we're going to broaden into other things as well, uh, seminars and retreats and and other things. It's the inner work that I call the wisdom work that gets you there. And Mm. and Pippin didn't say they were always there, but he said the most magical games were when they got there. And it's just like, wow, okay. So it doesn't Mm. mean you're going to live there. But it means you can experience, and even if you fall short of that, you're so far along the road of mastery anyway, you're at a a point of mastery where you can get that flow, but you don't have it today, but guess what, you're still going to be great at whatever it is you do.
2: Right. Well, and and, you know, what's interesting since we use the word transcendence, I wonder if this is kind of what I'm hearing from you, but I wonder if you'd conceptualize it this way. So, would you say that when there's a a combination between, let's say, a sense of, let's say, some degree, a high degree of mastery, because I mean, you're never going to get it fully, right? Right. But a high degree of mastery. And then, let's say, we look at uncertainty as a gift. Can we say that that sense of mastery allows you to view uncertainty as a gift because you're actually now able to tolerate it? You're able to view yourself as a mature person, right? Right. So, the idea is you stem away or not stem away, you step away from uh, black and white thinking and you go from thinking okay i need some i need full reassurance all the time everywhere from everyone and now you're thinking no uncertainty is a gift because for me i know that there's so much more to go and there's so yeah, much more that yeah. i could potentially do right you're viewing yeah. uncertainty as a, like a sense of most i don't want to say eternal but it kind of feels that way like eternal possibility where again yeah. the two go hand in hand you have yeah. like uncertainty as a gift because again because of your mastery you can now tolerate it and you could think of yourself as not just maybe a premier player like scotty pippen but just as somebody who's a well-functioning adult. Yeah,
1: right. Absolutely. I love what you said. The only emendation I would make is that the tolerance of uncertainty is an aspect of very early mastery. Hmm. As mastery increases, the tolerance becomes an embrace. And most of wisdom is about what to embrace and what to release. Most people get it wrong embracing what they should release and releasing what they should embrace. But wisdom consists in part in knowing what to embrace and what to release. So if uncertainty is a gift, then to embrace it in the right ways requires a kind of a mastery. There are gifts that aren't gifts if you're not ready for them, but if you're ready for them, it can be a tremendous gift, right? Um, And so... This whole idea of uncertainty is an open field of possibilities. Uh, uncertainty is a garden of self-knowledge. It's a it's a catapult of self-cultivation. It's a school of faith beyond sight. It's a it's a, it provides for innovation. All the great explorers, all the great inventors, have have embraced uncertainty as the arena within which they were going to create. Um, it wasn't laid out in advance. I mean, imagine a world in which everything was a hundred percent predictable. There were absolutely no surprises. You always knew how things were going to turn out. Like, right in my neighborhood, the Duke Carolina rivalry, you know, uh, imagine if Carolina had won 500 times in a row, you know, and it's like, Oh, Carolina won today. Yeah. Like always, you know? it's like, who's going to watch the game if they know how, and they know every play and there's no uncertainty whatsoever. That would be a frozen world.
2: Right. Right? Yeah.
1: That's not a human world. And let's use the phrase from Frozen, the movie, let it go. That's not a yeah. world anybody wants to live in, right? So if that's the case, then what's the world we do want to live in? The world with the, a world with healthy uncertainty. There's, I want to distinguish between everyday uncertainty, enhanced uncertainty, and extreme uncertainty. The people in Gaza right now, extreme uncertainty in Israel. The people in, in, in uh uh, Ukraine, extreme un- uh, uh, uncertainty. It's not like we're going to go looking for that, right? right but whenever right. uncertainty comes our way, we we live with everyday uncertainty the way fish swim in water and birds fly in the air. Most people are not even aware of the level of uncertainty in their everyday lives because most things, most of the time, go most of the way you kind of think. But there can always be that surprising phone call. There can always be that development you didn't see coming. And most of us now, with, when we become aware of this at all, we think we we must be living in not just everyday uncertainty right now. It's kind of a little bit enhanced for everybody around the world, Mm -hmm. you know, nuclear saber rattling and all the stuff that's going on. It's like, we don't want to go looking for the wrong kind of uncertainty, but we want to be able to flourish in whatever uncertainty we've been given, right? right? So even in extreme uncertainty, I don't want to be the guy who shuts down. I want to be the guy who reaches out and helps the person next to me. Um, and so that means embracing and grappling with whatever you've been given. Yeah, yeah. It may not mean going as far as the stoics and the stoics say you should desire whatever is the case. That may be going too far. The Stoics are great. You know, the end of the movie film in Louise where they drive the car off the cliff, that's the Stoics in almost everything. They have these great ideas then they always want to drive the car off the cliff and go a little too far. Well, okay, maybe I don't have to love everything that happens. Maybe I don't have to desire everything that happens, but I have to accept it and work with it. Functionality principle again, right? So yeah. even enhanced levels of uncertainty, even the most, if I find myself in a situation of extreme uncertainty, I want to be the guy who's not shut down because of that. I want to be the guy who's opens up because of that and does what needs to be done.
2: Yeah, and
0: you know, uh, sorry, no, with the with the Stokes, you know, my interpretation of that is like desiring it, uh, yeah. just as if like whatever happens, um, think of it as if as if it, you you had chosen it. So yeah. this way, you're able to have some sort of shared responsibility with what happens. In order, yeah. to this way, you you still feel like uh, it's. I mean. It's like you're embracing um, control of it, but then your lack of control of it. You know what? scratch that but no it's but still, I, totally like owning, saying, yeah, I totally get what you're yeah. saying
1: alan i totally get what you're saying but anybody you bring to my attention the murdered kids in ukraine or the murdered kids in oh, and yeah. i'm not going to say oh i desire that you know mm. i have to Absolutely. The tell me to there are other forms of accepting the present while wanting the immediate future to be very very different right and mm. so I, there's a sense of which i'm not going to fight against the present and the immediate past what's happened has happened and i have to accept that at a certain level of acceptance right i have to yeah. love it I don't have to want it, but I can I can I can let it not shut me down like what we were just saying about uncertainty. I can let it open me up. What then should I do? to make the very next moments of the future better or the moments after that, or the next week or the next month. What can I do? Can I write a congressman? Can I do this? Can I show up at a protest? Can I, what, what, what's available to me, you know? And uh, but, so I always think the Stoics had a, had a good heart about stuff. Uh, they were always moving in the right direction, but sometimes they want to go a little bit too far because Epictetus and others wanted us to have an inner fortress the inner citadel, right? The famous book, Pierre Hadot book about Marcus Aurelius, the inner citadel. They wanted us to have a fortress, a citadel where, you know, we weren't ever going to blame the gods for anything. We were going to sure. be fine with everything because that would be the most pious way to be in, in life and all this. And I get all that. And I think we can have a measure of that without mm-hmm. going full metal jacket, you know, all the way wow. uh, uh, accelerator to the floor. And uh, so we learn from the Stoics. Without exactly being what they say, and sometimes you know people point out that Epictetus loved to exaggerate. He was all, he was a doctor hyperbole, you know, because he was trying to shake his wealthy students. They were from wealthy families. Like my wife and I just watched the the movie uh, Crazy Rich Asi- Asians last night, which she read the book a long time ago, and it's 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 a fun movie. But it's like there are certain people caught in a certain lifestyle, and they were Epictetus's students. He just wanted to shake them hard <laughs> to get them out of their philosophical lethargy, uh, their existential uh, 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 morass. Um, They were just sheep following each other over the edge of a cliff, he thought. So he had to use all kinds of rhetorical devices to wake them up, wake them up, wake them up. And so he wasn't being as careful as an analytic philosopher in the American Philosophical Association quarterly. He was shouting from a megaphone. And so as we... 21st century philosophers want to interpret his words. We say, okay, what's he getting at here? Do I need to do exactly what he's saying? Or is there something in the neighborhood that's really healthy that I can pull back a little bit and be
2: exactly where I need to be? yeah 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 and to as we start to wrap up to bring this back to the seven seas uh what's well, yeah. so interesting yeah and, and so what's so interesting is that when you're um when you're thinking about like a flow state or transcending or feeling as though and this reminds me of the movie i don't know if you guys have seen the movie the legend of bagger vance where uh with oh, Will Smith, yeah, robert yeah robert redford right so there's this there's a scene and this moment where he feels sort of united with the golf course right like he feels as though it's one so and going back into the seven seas right so it's not i guess thinking it through it's not just mastery and it's not just the the the, the gift of uncertainty becomes a gift because of a sense of mastery. It's also what you note in saying that it's about enjoying the process. So it's like yeah. when you're doing something you love, when you feel as though you're skillful at it, when you feel as though you're now able to tolerate uncertainty, now all of these things fuse together into something, I guess, for lack of a term, beautiful. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. That's the way the seven C's work. Uh, A clear conception of what you want, that's the goal right for you, a strong confidence that's right for you, this inner game, uh, focus, concentration, the the consistency, the commitment, the character. And the character, by the way, uh, a a college student from Spain visited me not too long ago. He wanted to have breakfast at this dive restaurant near where I live. And so we go out for breakfast and we sit down and he doesn't say what's good here, what's on the menu. His first words after his but hit the seat where, what is wisdom? Mm. And I did my normal thing, wisdom's insight for living, you know, that kind of thing. And then I said for the first time, because I never thought of it like this, I said, Ins- uh, wisdom is guidance and guardrails.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said, what's guardrails? Because he's not a native English speaker. I said, you know, you're uh, on a mountain road, you're going around a twisty road, there's a, a metal railing to keep your car from going over. Oh, yeah. Most wisdom in the past 50 years has been about guidance. Do this, do that, do this, do that. The history of wisdom is as much about guardrails as it is about guidance. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Because the great philosophers wanna prepare us for this. Well, what the Stoics said, and a lot of people think they don't have any room for positive emotion. They have room for the emotion of joy. I mean, Seneca mentions it a bunch of times. And if you're doing all these things right, you set yourself up for the seventh of my seven conditions, conditions—a capacity to enjoy the process along the way. And Pippin and Jordan and people like that who talk about flow, That's a level of enjoyment that a lot of people hardly ever even glimpse, and yet it's available to us. When we strip away the unnecessary baggage, when we concentrate on the stuff that's important, these seven conditions for success, when we become artists of achievement in all the right ways, And that's why I redid this book, The Art of Achievement for Our Time. I wrote it 25 years ago, and I loved it 25 years ago because I don't put a book out there that I don't like. You should see all the incomplete books I've got in my computer that, no, I'm not going to finish that one. But this one I love, but I've learned a lot in 25 years of talking Mm. about these ideas ideas to people. And so I wanted to put all the new stuff in the new edition. So, So it's out now as of last week, and the early comments I'm getting from people is just extraordinary it makes me realize it's like the comments you get from people by the podcast I'm sure you say to yourself wow we're doing the right thing here now if we could just get those metrics up a little yeah
2: bit. <laughs> yeah 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 and that's what i think it comes down to so going into and thinking about just um what sort of sustains us or what sustains our confidence i mean it's essentially that it's, it's the viewership that we have uh the fact that like guests like you Tom, like find our value find our work to be valuable so yeah. for us to have somebody that we deeply respect and admire to, to have you say something like hey i listen to your episode I got some value out of it. Yeah, that keeps us going. That's essentially the train that kind of keeps chugging along for us. So yeah, yeah
1: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And the very fact that you wanted to talk about this book today, The Art of Achievement, makes me feel good that, that it's something that that would interest you guys. And so we need to keep each other going. You know, I'm gonna give us talk about the gift of uncertainty uh, in a week and a half. And I'm gonna talk about hope, the concept of hope. And one of the points I wanna make is that we give, e- our job is this, to give each other hope. Um, Hope is not a solitary. It's usually thought of as it's either in your heart or it's not, uh, but it's something we should be giving each other. And as we do our work together, you guys with each other, you guys and me together, we should give each other hope for our joint enterprises, for the difference we're making in the world, and for the fact that, yeah, we're not perfect. Yeah, we got a lot to learn, but guess what? We're on the right path.
2: Yeah. And to, as we wrap up, to fi- to give a final quote from uh, one of our favorite guests, Diamond Dallas Page, he says, never underestimate the power that you give someone by believing in them. There All you right, go. absolutely. Alan-, right. <laughs> Alan, final
0: questions for Tom as we wrap up? Yes, uh, Tom, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the new book, uh, where can we do that?
1: Okay, go to TomVMorris.com. See this, Tom Morris, put a V for Victor right in the middle, no punctuation, TomVMorris.com. Uh, that's my website. Uh, I'm on social media, on the uh, the About page of the website, you can click all the social media icons, follow me. I've got a crew of really faithful people. Every I post every morning across social media, some sentence or paragraph. That has really gotten me going for the day. I usually post around eight o'clock in the morning. I get this slew of people commenting, and you know, not only saying, "Wow, this is great! This is what I needed to hear," but you, what about this? So uh, here's a here's a question. I've had. And so we've got this community of inquiry going uh, every day on social media, which that's can be the glory of social media, right? I mean, people we've mm-hmm. never met in real life and may never meet, but we we benefit from their wisdom every
2: single day. So I invite people to come join me in that. Absolutely Tom thank you again so much for this, this is awesome. yeah, and, oh, and, yeah. That, I, and I love this that this is the third installment so when we see you in January you are going to be uh, the most what was it the most one of our most booked guests if not the most booked guests wow, I think you might you true. might either be one or two yeah yeah yeah
1: I got to get a t-shirt you know, I mean, there's gotta be something, right? My my wife once bought me a little button, a little bright blue button in big white bold letters that said almost famous person. So now I feel like I can finally wear that button. I've been on your show enough.
2: I love it. Tom, again, thank you so much, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, guys. This was great. Awesome. See you See ya. Bye.
0: All right. That was awesome. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram on Twitter where it sees underscore podcast, like subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.